morning, everyone. Good to uh, see everyone here today. If you have a Bible, I hope you have a Bible, please turn to Acts chapter 4. And we're going to be reading verses 23 to 31 together. Before we get started, I want to uh, just share some really good news about small groups. We have been emphasizing uh, gathering small, we've been encouraging people to sign up for small groups, and so the good news is that many new people have signed up for small groups, which I'm really excited about. But there's more good news, and that is that we don't have enough small group leaders for all the people who've signed up. Isn't that good news? Do you know why it's good news? Because it means that some of you have to step up to the plate and move out of your comfort zone and come and do some small group training with me this fall. So we're going to be letting you know when that's happening. Some of you have already done the training. Uh, some of you uh, uh, would like to. I know that you want to. And so I'm just trusting right now as I tell you about this need that some of you will realize, yes, I need to, I need to take the small group leaders training. Doesn't mean you'll have to lead on your own. A number of our groups are going to have two sets of co-leaders, uh, so um, just be aware of that. And uh, I also want you to realize it doesn't mean that you can't still sign up for small groups. We want to make sure uh, make room for everyone who wants to be part. So that's the good news and the good news. No bad news today, but we are going to talk about an authentic church. And today we're going to see that an authentic church is a praying church. And we're going to read starting in. Acts chapter 4, verse 23, down to verse 31. So let me read these verses for us. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Now take note of their prayer. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Father God, we are a church that needs to learn to pray like this. We are a church that needs to know your presence like this, that needs to see prayers answered like this. We are desperate for you to be present with us and to be active among us. Lord, forgive us for being people who do not pray, or who pray amiss. And teach us something today, Lord. Teach me something. 
to help us to be more of an authentic church, a praying church, a church that sees supernatural things from your hand because we simply humble ourselves before you and ask for you to do what you already want to do in us and through us. Would you make this a reality, I pray. Amen. Many of us have read stories of Christian people, perhaps recently, through the centuries perhaps, who have prayed prayers and have seen God answer in amazing ways. Some of us have read about Mueller, that man uh, 150 years ago in Bristol, England, who built several orphanages and then simply depended upon God, never asked for money, and simply prayed for God to provide. Maybe you've heard the story of that one morning when the cafeteria, the, the kitchen, the dining room, with all of these orphan children sitting there prepared to eat something, and Mueller stands to pray knowing they have nothing to set before the children. And as the prayer is finishing, there's a knock on the door, and the guy from the bakery, uh, his, his, uh, his horse and buggy is broken down or something right outside the door, and he's wondering if they could use any bread. Or Jim Simbola, who wrote a book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle, a praying church. And on one Tuesday evening, when they always gather to pray there, a woman handed him a simple note that said, we should pray tonight for your daughter. And Jim Simbola's daughter was far from God. She had left home. In fact, Jim and his wife didn't even know where she was. If, they, if she was living on the street, they didn't know. But that night, by the prompting of this Christian woman at their church, the church raised their voice together and prayed for Jim Simbola's daughter. And a couple of days later, she came home. And she said, Dad, you prayed for me Tuesday night, didn't you? And the Lord had worked in her heart and stirred her to come back, not only to her family, but to God. We hear stories like this and we think, oh, if only... And some of us, maybe all of us, I know it's true of me at times, we think that those are stories for special people, that unfortunately God does those kinds of things for others, but not for me, or not for our church. And I would argue this morning that God loves to do those kinds of things. He loves to answer prayer. He loves to do the supernatural. And the missing link is not God. It is us. Our lack of faith, our unwillingness to ask, or that we plead with God to give us what we want rather than what He wants. I trust this morning as we consider these verses, we will be encouraged and challenged to be praying individual, individually as believers and to be a praying church. I want to just get some of the context of where this story has come from. We actually looked at this picture last week. Uh, about the temple courts and that's where Acts chapter 4 begins Peter and John are going into the temple courts likely the outside that large outer court they're going in through those temple courts and there's a lame man there begging that would be a great place to beg actually that was probably the only place he could beg because probably the Jewish people wouldn't have allowed him into the inner courts close to the temple because as a lame man they would have seen him as being unclean and not worthy to come into the inner courts but nevertheless there was way more people coming in through those outer courts it was a great place if you needed to beg for money and that's where they found this man he asked them for money 
And instead of giving them money, they said, we don't actually have money, but they healed him in the name of Jesus. And this man, it tells us in Acts chapter 4, or 3 actually, in chapter 3, he stands up and he begins to walk and leap and praise God. There's a little kid song about that some of us used to sing. And then they come into the, uh, the outer courts of the temple, a place called Solomon's Porch, and, and so many people have seen what's happened and they're amazed. And so Peter and John take this as an opportunity to preach the gospel and to tell people about Jesus. And a large number of people are gathered around. In fact, it says that after this sermon, the number of believers in that first church had grown to 5,000. Remember, day of Pentecost, 3,000. And now 2,000 more have been added, in some cases, many cases, because of this very sermon that Peter had preached after the man was healed. But of course, the religious authorities saw what was happening and were angry, and they arrest Peter and John, and they leave them in jail overnight, and then the next day they are interrogated, and ultimately they are threatened and released. And the threat, of course, is that they would be severely punished if they continued to preach in the name of Jesus. This is what has just happened before our passage. Notice verse 21 of chapter 4. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. And so it's after this that we find verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Notice that. They go back to the rest of the believers and they report what had been said to them. And what had been said to them? Threats. These are the same people who just weeks earlier had crucified Jesus. The, the very person that they are preaching about and the one that they are pointing others to and saying you need to believe in Jesus and Jesus died for your sins, for your salvation. Now their task is to preach about him and tell people about Jesus. And the same people who crucified him are now threatening their lives. Notice that. I mean, some of us would have gone back to the church and uh, tried to sugarcoat that a little bit. It's going to be okay. Like, that, let's not talk too much about the threats, but not so here. What do we learn about a praying church from this story? Here's the first thing I want us to see, and I just love this. They prayed in unity. It tells us here that Peter and John went back to their own. Literally, they went back to their own. Inference here, the assumption being they went back to their, as it says in the NIV, their own people. But don't you love that? In fact, this is what really is happening every Sunday. Because we've gone out this past week and we've scattered into various places of work and education and into different neighborhoods and we've had conversations with different people and we've been through some difficult things, some of us. We've seen some prayers answered. We've seen some uh, hard news but when we come here on Sunday, we come back to our own. I love the expression that I heard years ago, we gather and then we scatter. And scattering isn't always easy and it's not always, it's not always pleasant, the things that we encounter out there in the world. But praise God, on Sundays we get to come back and gather again with our own. Or if you're in a small group, maybe on a Tuesday night, you get to gather again with your own 
One of the reasons that we don't see God move powerfully through our corporate prayers is because we haven't first come to understand what it means to be part of this body. We haven't come to see what it means to be God's people together. Peter and John understood that. Having just been threatened by the same people who killed Jesus, they, praise God, they could come back to their own people. And they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said. And when they, that means all of them, had heard this, what did they do? They raised their voices, notice it says it, together. It's a word here that emphasizes togetherness in prayer. And what it means is they raised their voices unanimously. Don't you love that? That's what the way it's supposed to work. When, when you sit down at your dinner table as a family and you give thanks, it's meant to be a unanimous prayer. It's not meant to be dad prays and the rest of us think about what we're about to eat. It's, or, or, or that mom prays and we daydream about something else. No, we pray unanimously. And even though only one person is praying in that moment, we can all listen through the prayer and then we can say, all of us, amen, which means it's true, and what we're saying is, I'm unanimous with this. I am in agreement with this, that we gather before our meal and give thanks. I agree, because God is our provider. Same thing here when we pray as a church. We listen unanimously. We're, we're hearing what is being prayed, and we can say yes. We can say amen, because we're in agreement. So there's a special word that's used here to describe this, this unanimity of the church. As they prayed together, they actually literally prayed together. They raised their voice together. They were unanimous. So here's the first thing about being a praying church, an authentic church that prays, is that we pray in unity. I wonder if we recognize what Scripture teaches about the power of corporate prayer. We have this verse from Matthew 18, which I find a powerful, insightful verse. If two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. There is a principle here that teaches us that when multiple people, the people of God, come in the name of God or in the name of Jesus and bring a request unanimously before God, there is something special about that that goes beyond those prayers that we would pray as individuals. And that's not to minimize or discourage us from praying as individuals. We absolutely should pray as individuals. We should have a private prayer life. But we should be eager to gather with brothers and sisters and raise our voice together and be unanimous. Some of the most sweetest and pleasant times I've had being part of a church have come in moments where we've gathered together as one and prayed. Years ago when we lived in London, uh, there was a little baby boy, his name was Gideon, and uh, he got pneumonia. And as sometimes happens with little babies, it, it came on fast and suddenly he was turning blue and uh, it was actually his grandmother that suggested, I think you better get him to the hospital and they get him to the hospital and the doctor fairly soon is saying, I don't think he's going to make it. 
And so uh, we, we kind of rallied the people at Southdale Bible Chapel where this family was. And we, uh, we had a place, uh, a home in the north of the city, and then our church building was in the south of the city. And so we just spread the word, phone calls, emails, this is where you can meet, just come and join us. And we were in that home in the north and uh, got to be part of this prayer time. We were on our knees before God and we were praying desperately for Gideon to survive. Every time I get to go back and preach at Southdale, I always get to see Gideon. He's about six foot something now because God answered that prayer. And it was so exciting to see not just God answer the prayer, but, but, but the unity that comes from joining with other brothers and sisters uniting together with one heart and saying, God, this is what we long to see you do. The authentic church is a praying church, and the praying church learns to pray in unity. Folks, if your heart, and you know, COVID has created this reality where we're not all in agreement with how we understand this disease and with how we understand its treatment and how we understand vaccines and mask wearing, we're not all in agreement about that. But the danger is that we bring that disagreement into our attitude towards God and his people. And I would argue it is a beautiful thing, even though right now in this room and in the gym and if you're watching at home, we don't all agree on these things, but we can agree in the presence of God that we want to see his glory made known. We can agree in the presence of God that Jesus is the only way. And we can agree in the presence of God in prayer that we long to see people saved. That we long to see his church united. We can still come with unity. The question is, what is our attitude towards our brothers and sisters? Some of us have allowed our differences on these issues to create wedges and anger and bitterness that hinders our prayer life. We see that even in the New Testament when it comes to a husband and a wife. 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, where a husband is taught to, uh, to, to dwell with his wife with understanding. And it goes on to say that if he is not to do that, if he doesn't do that, that his prayers will be hindered. You see that? The unity in a marriage leads to, the, leads to the potency of the prayers. The unity of a church leads to the strength and efficacy of its prayers. An authentic church is a praying church. And a praying church must pray in unity. Secondly, we find that they prayed in humility. And there's so many examples of this in this prayer. It begins with how they address God. My Bible translates it sovereign Lord. It's just one word in the Greek language, but it's a word that's much stronger than the common word for Lord in the, in the New Testament, the Greek language of kurios. This is a different word, and it means exactly the way it's translated here. It, it means divine Lord or sovereign Lord. It's speaking to someone who's not just in charge and just master, but this is, there's only one person who can fit this title and it's God himself sovereign Lord they said I wonder sometimes in my own prayer life is the biggest problem I have as I approach God in prayer is I don't take time to stop and remember who I'm praying to I had a prof in Bible college and uh, whenever he'd finish a class he would pray and he'd, 
he'd say, okay, let's, let's bow in prayer. And, and so we'd all bow our heads, and, and he would wait, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't start his prayer for, for several seconds. And I always kind of wondered why he did that. My assumption now, as I've gotten older and realized how quickly I can rush into prayer and not think about who I'm praying to, is that that's what he was attempting to do by that silence, that moment of silence, was to remind us that we are approaching the throne of a holy God, sovereign Lord. So they address him in that way. And notice they begin to recount to God things about him. And does, doesn't God already know these things? Isn't it a waste of time to begin prayer by telling God stuff he already knows? Not biblically, it's not, because we see it all the time. They address him as sovereign Lord, and then they tell him what he already knows, what he already did. You made the heavens and the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. Does God need to be reminded that he's creator? He doesn't need to be. But what this does as we approach God in prayer is that it establishes who is on the throne and who is at the footstool. Do you see what it does? Uh, there are people who preach a prosperity gospel that would teach us that in prayer, we place God uh, at our command. That we name and claim that God is obligated to do whatever we say and ask. And the great problem and the obvious problem with that is it gets, us, gets the wrong order of who's on the throne and who's on their face. But these believers understood that to pray to God was to pray to a sovereign God. It wasn't for His sake, it was for their own sake that they prayed to Him as Creator. You're the one who made everything. You're the one who made us. And you could do that with your voice, with your words. Then they go on to speak in their prayer about the Scripture, the Bible. They say, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Now they're doing what some people encourage us to do, and that is they're, they're quoting the Bible in prayer. Now, I've, I've known people, by the way, who do this for show. That's not what's happening here. We're not quoting the Bible when we pray to impress people with how much we know about the Bible or that I've memorized a certain verse or scripture. They are quoting the scripture back to God in a way that demonstrates His greatness. So what are they saying here? They're quoting from Psalm 2. They're reminding God about something He already knew, that this, this is your word. You spoke this through our father David. I love this because they're acknowledging that, that all of scripture is inspired by God. And what they're going to do here with Psalm 2 is they're going to say, this has been fulfilled in our day. Your word, which you, you brought about through your Holy Spirit, it has been fulfilled. So what's Psalm 2 say? Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed one. When David wrote that, in his mind, he was thinking about God, the God of Israel, and the king, the king of Israel, which ultimately would be him. But now, these people read this scripture, and they, the lights have gone on, and they realize this isn't just about God and whoever happens to be the king of Israel. In their day, it was actually Herod, who they're going to mention. 
Now they realize that the true anointed one is the Son of God, Jesus. So here's this scripture David writes about the nations plotting against God and rising up against God. And then they recount to God how that's exactly what happened to Jesus. They rise up against God and his anointed one. Now we know this is fulfilled in their persecution and killing of Jesus, the true anointed king of Israel. So they're saying, God, we, we pray to a God who's sovereign. We pray to a God who's creator. We pray to a God who's the author of scripture, who's the author of history. Notice even how they make reference to the Holy Trinity. They pray to God. Then they mention how through the Holy Spirit, he inspired the word of God. Then they mention through Psalm 2, the anointed one, who they name as the servant Jesus, whom God anointed in verse 27. This is praying humbly. This is praying in such a way that we're acknowledging who God is. He's sovereign. He's triune. He's creator. He's the author of scripture. And then notice verse 28. Now we see specifically what they mean when they call him sovereign Lord. Because in verse 28 they say this, they did, or these human authorities who killed Jesus, they did what, notice, your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now let's be honest, we, we really should wrestle with this. There's a lot of people who wrestle with this, who have a big problem with this, this idea that God orchestrated his son's demise. There are some people who scoff at this and call this uh, divine child abuse. So we need to reckon with this. What, what they're saying is, God, in your sovereignty, you took the most wicked act in all of history, the killing of the Creator, the killing of the Son of God, and this was part of your plan. Now, if we know the rest of the Bible, for example, the prophecy of Isaiah 53, where we read that it was God's will, it was God's will to bruise him. And why was it God's will? Because this was the means by which God could atone for the sins of humanity. This wicked deed of humanity taking the Son of God and killing him from human perspective was sheer wickedness. From this, the perspective of a sovereign God, this was his provision of a lamb of sacrifice who was destroyed and killed, his blood shed for the redemption of humanity. This is the sovereignty of God. Isn't this an amazing thing about God? God turns evil into good. And one of the reasons that the believers are praying about this act of persecution against Jesus is because this is exactly what they're facing now. Not to the same degree, but within a couple of chapters, we're going to see Stephen is martyred for his faith. And then we're going to see the Apostle James is martyred for his faith. We're going we're to meet Saul before he became an Apostle who is killing Christians. 
Notice what they're doing here. They're reminding God about his sovereignty. You took the killing of Jesus and turned it into good. Now they're threatening to harm us. Do you see what they're saying here? What they're not saying is, God, don't let it happen. Please, please, please don't let it happen. What they're saying is, God, if they do it, you can turn it into redemption. That's what they're saying. That's what they're reminding God of here. You take wickedness, you turn it into evil. Then they say, now, remember their threats. They're, never, they're not once here asking God to spare them from the persecution. They're saying, God, you take persecution and you turn it into redemption. And notice what they ask for. Give us boldness to speak your word. Why? Because the word brings redemption, even in the face of persecution. They prayed in humility. The final act of humility we see here is verse 29. Consider their threats, as I've just mentioned. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. In other words, they were submitting themselves to do the will of God no matter the price. And that's the next point I want us to see. I'm going to say this they prayed obediently. In other words, they aligned their prayers with what they already knew the will of God was for them. The apostles knew this because they'd received the Great Commission, which was to go and make disciples of all nations. Making disciples requires teaching people the Word of God and spreading the good news about Jesus. And then having received Jesus, we teach people to obey the things of God. They understood that to be on God's agenda was to be speaking His Word. So they prayed obediently. That's why they didn't ask God to take away the trouble and take away the threats and take away the pain. What they asked was that God would enable them to do what He'd already asked them to do. And they had great faith that He would do it. So in verse 29, they asked for God to give them boldness to speak His Word. Then notice verse 30. They, they ask another thing. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. On the one hand, we can understand that prayer. That's exciting. I mean, it's exciting to see miracles. But the last miracle that they just did had got them landed into jail, right? Peter and John heal the lame man. God heals the, the lame man through Peter and John. And they end up in jail, they're asking God to do something that, that would create a greater threat to them. It's just like when Jesus did miracles. The more miracles he did, the more people flocked to him to hear his word, and the more the authorities got angry and said, we've got to kill this guy. So they were asking for God to do something that would put them in greater danger. Why? Because they knew that if God did that, it would empower their witness of Jesus. It would empower their preaching of the gospel. God would be, and that's why it's called a sign, by the way. It's a sign because God is putting out this big billboard through his miraculous working that the gospel is true, that Jesus is true, that you can believe this. It's true. He was confirming and affirming what the apostles and the believers were preaching. And then notice at the end of verse 30. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Do you know why they prayed obediently? Do you know what that looked like? It looked like being Christ-centric. 
To be an authentic church is to be a Christ-centered church. To be uh, authentic in our ministry for God is to be Christ-centered. And we never once want to try and make a name for ourselves as an individual. We have no interest in making a name for our church. We just want to make a name for Jesus. We want to be on God's agenda, on God's program. And what matters is that people would hear the name of Jesus. I want to just take a moment and think about the whole signs and wonders thing, and I don't have much time. There's a lot of debate in the Christian world today as to whether signs and wonders or miracles, do they, do they still happen, or has that time passed? Uh, there are many very sound theologians who would say, no, that God can still and still does do miracles. There are others. Um, probably most famously, John MacArthur, a very respected theologian who would uh, point to some scriptures in the New Testament that would say, no, the, these signs and wonders have ceased. We don't look for these things any longer. So how should we understand these things? And in our context, where most of us have never seen or experienced a miracle that we would say is authentic, how should we pray? Should we be asking God for signs and wonders? And I want to show you just earlier in this chapter one of the ways perhaps not the only way, but one of the ways that God shows his signs and wonders through his people. So look at these verses with me. Acts 4, verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, who's he talking to? He's talking to the authorities who are about to threaten them with violence and persecution. Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame, and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Notice verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Don't you love that? And what does that mean? It means that they were seeing something supernatural in these men. Now in this, this, this short passage that I read, there was no Miracle, in the sense that we would think of a miracle. No one got healed in those verses. No one rose from the dead in those verses. No one walked on water in those verses. But I would argue and say to you, it was as supernatural as anything else that happened in the book of Acts. Why? Because it was fueled by the Holy Spirit. We have the privilege of walking out of this building and heading back to work tomorrow with the exact same experience described here of Peter and John, where we have the privilege, being filled with the Holy Spirit, of speaking boldly to people who may or may not want to hear about Jesus, and explaining things that maybe we don't even fully grasp ourselves, and being used of God to bring someone else into the kingdom. We have the power available to us to go out into our lives tomorrow and have someone say there is something different about you. I don't know what it is. I like it. I sense God. 
working in you or through you. This is the supernatural Christian life. And sometimes we get so hung up on those obvious miracles. This is a miracle. To be a child of God filled with the Holy Spirit is a miracle. It is a sign and a wonder. And whatever our view is on miracles, we should all long for this. This is the discipleship path that we've introduced the last couple of weeks. And I would say this is the agenda that the apostles understood so well. That every person they encountered was somewhere in this spiritual journey. And if they were separated from Christ, they needed to hear the gospel. Or if they were searching for Christ, they needed to have the gospel explained so they might receive it. Or if they were a baby in Christ, they need to be encouraged so that they could grow in their faith. Everything about this is a work of God. It is supernatural. This is God's agenda. To pray obediently is to align our prayers with this. I would argue that as churches we pray far too seldom for this. What is it that keeps us from seeing people one to Christ? Well, a lot of times it's our fear. That's why these people understood that to to be on God's agenda, to pray obediently, was to pray for boldness. Because that's the roadblock. That's the roadblock to us sharing our faith as we're afraid. So God, would you remove that? Would you give us boldness? Of course, if you want God to answer that prayer, you you actually have to obey it when it happens. You have to walk in obedience when he puts those words in your mouth. They prayed obediently. And finally, they prayed successfully. That seems like a silly way to say it, but I don't know how else to describe verse 31. Where after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now, they didn't ask for God to shake the room. Why did the place shake? Coincidence? Just happened to be an earthquake. There there were earthquakes in that part of the world. But not a coincidence. Not the way the scripture describes it. What was God saying? He shook the place to say, I'm here. And I am sovereign. Just like you prayed and just like you said, I am here and I did hear and I am powerful. And I've often said, someday... Before I die and get to go to be with Jesus, I want to be in a prayer meeting like that. I want to feel the ground shake. But actually, that's not what we really need. What we just really need is for the presence of God to show up and to be present. And God did show up. He didn't have to shake the place because what He did is answered their prayer. He filled them with the Holy Spirit, enabled them to speak the Word of God boldly. Why don't we ask for that? It's not wrong for us to pray for those who are sick and in need of healing among us. It's good. It's godly to do that. But why don't we pray for the most obviously glaring thing that's missing for so many of us? That we would be excited, passionate about our faith, longing to share this good news with somebody. And if we are fearful or if we don't know what to say or if we don't know who to say it to, that we would just pray, God, open doors. Open my mouth. Give me the words to say. I first found God to love 
to answer this prayer when I was in high school. And I was in my fourth year, my fourth and final year of high school, and bit by bit, as I went through my years of high school, I started off in grade nine. I didn't want anyone to know I was a believer. I didn't want anyone to, to hear about the church that my parents hosted in our house, but word got out anyway. That was, oh boy, that was embarrassing. But by the, my last year of high school, I was, by God's grace, ready for people to know. And I was in one very small, small school in northern Ontario. I was in a very small OAC math class wasn't a great class. The teacher would stand up for 15 minutes, run through a lesson, then he'd sit down and we'd just shoot the breeze for the rest of the class, my lowest mark in high school. But after a few weeks of this class where we talked about everything under the sun, I felt the Lord nudging me to say, Gary, you guys have never talked about Jesus. You've never talked about your faith. And in, in that conviction, I just simply prayed two things. God, open an opportunity and then knowing my fear and weakness, I said, when you do it, because you will, you better, you better give me some boldness. And I literally, within the next day or two, somehow, the conversation turned to kosher foods. I, have no, I had no idea, I'd never heard of that expression in my life. But the teacher turned to me and said, Gary, you're religious, tell us about it. I realized that the Lord had answered the first prayer. And now I had to trust that he would answer the second. And he did. And I just simply had the opportunity to say, I have no idea about kosher foods, and in fact, I don't believe myself to be religious, but I believe in Jesus. And I believe that he's the one that offers salvation for our sin. And two of the few students in that class came to me after and said, you've got to tell me more about this. That was God. That was, that was just God. I knew my weakness. Do, do we realize how much God loves to answer prayers like this? We get discouraged in our prayer life. God doesn't answer my prayers. Well, yeah, it's because all we ask for is what we want. And we're not on God's agenda. If we can learn to pray in unity, to pray in humility, to pray obediently, then perhaps we will see our prayers successfully because of God's grace and presence among us. Let's sing, and then uh, I will close in prayer. Just join me and have a seat as we uh, sit humbly in the presence of a great God. Lord, I pray that as we sit here in your presence, that your spirit would be free to work in our hearts in whatever way is needed. You are a holy God, and we are a weak, a weak people, Lord. But by your grace, you've made us your children. You've saved us. You've made us new creations. Help us, Lord, to live in that newness to live in the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, what are the roadblocks that are keeping us from getting on your agenda, from being filled with your power, from doing your work? Show us, Lord, right now. Help us to confess and repent of those things. Lord, by your grace, would you make us an authentic church, a praying church? Give us a deep hunger to gather with other believers in small groups or as friends and through hospitality and just pray 
to a God who is able to do great things. And Lord, we live in the midst of a community, a world that so desperately needs to hear and understand the gospel. So Lord, fill us with compassion. Put your words in our mouth. Help us to share the good news. Lord, I pray that we would have the great privilege of seeing you, our great God, do amazing things among us and through us. Things that could never be ascribed to us in our weakness, but will simply attest to your greatness and goodness. Would you please make this true among us? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.